When you're lost in the darkness, look for the pod. Specifically, the Prestige TV podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network, where we're breaking down every new episode of HBO's The Last of Us. On Sunday nights, grab your battery and join Van Lathan and Charles Holmes for an instant reaction to the latest episode. Then head back to the QZ on Tuesdays for a deep dive with Joanna Robinson and Mallory Rubin. From character arcs to video game adaptation choices, story themes to needle drops, we'll parse every inch of this cordyceps-coated universe. Watch out for mouth tendrils and follow along on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, you guys. We're going to talk about some books. You know, we got we to gotta cover everything here. I'm really pleased to have this very exciting uh, author. on. Um, he's got such an interesting memoir. Uh, and the book is called I Can't Save You. It comes out on April 4th. And it's all about his journey to being a doctor and dealing with self-doubt and mental health. I mean, racism, voices talking to him. There's so many things in here that is so interesting and endearing and fresh. And it just comes right at you and just grabs you you know, in this embrace. It's, that's the best way I can explain it to you guys. But it's a pleasure. He's been a consultant on Grey's Anatomy. And he's, I think, uh, working in television and film now. I don't know if he's given up on his patience. We'll see. We'll have a conversation to find <laughs> out. But he's living in England now. Anthony Chen Kui, welcome to Black on the Air. It's so nice to meet you. And congrats on your book. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be both Black and on the air. Yeah, so. <laughs> Black and on the air. You're both. <laughs> well, what are the odds? Yeah, how about that? And I can't <laughs> save you. Congrats, man. I always have to give people their props when they... When I, I say, not even putting a book out, just finishing a book, I got to give the props. You know, we yeah, know how tough that can be. It is It is a journey. I, I started writing well, I conceived of it a long time ago. I started mm-hmm. writing it about seven years ago. Wow! Um, so it's wow. that's been the journey. So it's um, it's um, I can't even believe that you can hold it in yeah. right now. Now you say you started writing it seven years ago, and to me, like, why? What makes you want to write a memoir at that age? You know, because mm-hmm. usually you would think. I mean, you're a very young man, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like. What makes you want to write a memoir? Like, what's the thing hitting you where you said, you know what, I got to share my life at this point? Mm-hmm. Well, it kind of hit me. I remember the day it hit me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was in the middle of my residency training. I was doing residency training in ear, nose, and throat surgery. And Okay, in I, before you keep going, I just want to pinpoint yes. this for people. You're at the start of things. <laughs> you know, yeah. residency training is when you're starting, this light bulb is starting to come on about this, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt, but go ahead. Okay. Yeah. But so residency training, if you ask any friends you have who are are physicians or in the medical industry, um, they know that residency training is the hard part. Yeah. Um, It's where, you know, they break you down and hopefully you make it through. And so my residency training was, was five years long. And, and how, how long is residency supposed to last? Um, it depends on your specialty. So mm-hmm. for most of the surgical specialties, it's at least five years. Okay. Got um, it. Other specialties like ER, internal medicine, those are three years. Uh, oh. But for me, it was five. Okay. Got it. Yeah. So um, I'm halfway through and I'm in the middle of this massive depression episode. Yeah. And I mm. don't know, you know, I, I'm... I got asked to leave my program for a while. I, 
you know, have pretty dark stuff going through my head Mm -hmm. every minute. And I'm just trying to figure out a reason why not only I should keep, you know, living, of course, but why I should Mm -hmm. keep going on this path, going to this job that feels like it's trying to kill me, Mm. you know? Um, Mm. And I kind of had to get back to some basics about who I knew I was. Um, because a lot of that, when you start that journey kind of gets swept off to the side or kind of beaten out of you and who I was at, at my core has always been some manner of storyteller. Hmm. And I've always been super artsy and, and loved performance and really telling Hmm. stories in all their mediums. But, um, I hadn't done that in so many years Hmm. and I realized, you know, a lot of the stories that I'd read um, written by doctors about their journeys, um, fantastic stories, you know, all the running and the gamut. But, yeah. you know, in the end, doctors, one, we like to look good at the end of the day. You yeah, know, we yeah. want you to we want you to keep looking up to us you know, sure. at the end of the day when when we write something. And two, a lot of the time, you know, it's when times get tough, you know in these books, you know, it's medicine that saves you. It's medicine yeah. that brings it back, you know, mm-hmm. like reminds you why you're doing all this stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, that hadn't been the truth of the experience for me. And I knew, um, based on many of my colleagues and friends at the time, it wasn't the experience for them. The job can just crush you. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of designed that it's kind of designed that way, right? Yeah, it's designed to mm-hmm. kind of break you down. And for many of us, you know, we're told that in order to succeed, it has to be some sort of calling to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. But in reality, it's just a job, you know, like and it's a job for many of us that just strips away everything that makes you you. And that is a story or an experience that I felt I'd been deprived of understanding Mm. uh, before I jumped in. Um, And it's a sort of an experience that gets lost when we're talking about doctors. Um, Mm. And so I decided at that point, you know, really, I didn't have any, really didn't have much in terms of grander uh, societal ideals and plans, but it was really just for me to survive. I was just like, what if I told this story? What if I told the story I hadn't seen? Mm -hmm. And I started, you know, making notes on my life, you know, from then. And, you know, I I knew just the way through and the way to make it meaningful was to be truthful, even if it meant I looked bad a lot of the time. And even if it meant no one would hire me when it came out, you know, I was just, we gotta, we gotta just pull back the veil and not just on medicine, which I realized partway through, but Mm -hmm. really on, you know, my experiences and all the things that got me to that point. Yeah. Cause I've always felt, especially with surgeons, my observation of it from a comedy writer standpoint is I always feel like the best surgeons, the people at the top of their game are sociopaths. (laughs) We have a lot of the characteristics. It's absolutely true. Although you have to be sociopaths. There's no way you can watch all that human carnage, you know, and blood gushing and lives like light switches turning on and off, you know, like you're a barista just making things, you know, whatever. I mean, (laughs) you have to be a sociopath. 
And you are clearly not a sociopath, you know, <laughs> like you were what I would call a feelings doctor. <laughs> yes. And that uh, <laughs> fucked you up. It feels, seems like. Yeah. yeah well, I was going to say, I mean, the thing about sociopaths is that mm-hmm. we're very good at convincing you that we're not. But, yes. See, um, now you keep, you keep calling yourself a sociopath. I'm insisting that you're not, but you, uh, you are putting yourself in the sociopath bucket. So, well, I think I can't, I can't exclude myself from the club entirely Okay, because I, I, I went through it, you know, I'm, it, I am a surgeon. Yeah. It kind of can turn you into a sociopath, I guess. Yes, yeah, I, yeah. absolutely. You know, um, but I think, you know, to your point, um, I am a feelings doctor Yeah, and that made it very difficult. Yes. Um, because, you know, I know everybody that I went through uh, medical school, medical training with at some point, and it's early on, every mm-hmm. doctor, no matter what their specialty, makes a choice as to how they're going to deal with the death and carnage and illness and mm-hmm. seeing people at their worst all the time. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, path number one is to find a way to turn it off, mm-hmm. to not engage you know, um, so that you kind of save yourself. Yeah. There's ways to do that. There's ways to do that just emotionally, just not just being the sure the doctor. Like when you're a patient, you're just like, I feel like what I'm saying is just bouncing right off of this person. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and that's a choice to protect themselves so that they can do this for 20 years. And then there are other types of doctors who are the feelers mm. who in order to make it worth it and, and to, to feel like, you know, you're really making the difference you want to make, you have to be an empath. You have to take on some of what people are giving you. Oh my God. That feels so overwhelming. It is overwhelming. And then, you know, you take that stuff on and then you have to figure out how to let it go. How to slough it off after that. Yeah. Yeah. And it is a lot of the times, you know, it's not possible to completely let it go. Sure, You know, that stuff piles on you. Um, and even if you're the type of doctor who wants to turn it off, the stuff is piling on you. Um, it's, I don't think there is a wrong way to do it. Yeah. You know, everyone makes a choice that's right for them. But for me, the feeling empathic way was my choice and it made it very difficult to, to do the things that we do. Was it a choice or was it just, you know, like, is it even examined? Like I, I doubt they're like, they don't have classes in compartmentalization in medical school, right? You know, so <laughs> emotional compartmentalization. It seems like that would be a major thing to, to at least impart to people. I think they're trying. I think yeah. they're trying now. The mental um, health part of being a doctor. Recent, yeah. yeah mm-hmm. I think in recent years, especially because I went to, I went to Emory, um, yeah. the year they started this brand new curriculum, um, which kind of wanted to put more focus on, mm-hmm. um, you know, being a more empathic and understanding type of doctor. That's the type of doctor they wanted to start to produce more of. Wow. Um, and so, but it's just, you know, a lot of it is just classroom learning stuff sure. when you get onto which the ward, when you're in the hospital, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. you learn, you learn, you know, by reading the books and the, and the texts, you know, this is how you're supposed to interact. This mm-hmm. is how you're supposed to reciprocate someone's, you know, emotions and feelings. This is how mm-hmm. you're supposed to communicate bad news, you know, all that sort of stuff. But then you're just, you're, you're thrown into the world. Yeah. 
That's so scary to me. (laughs) Have you heard from colleagues? I mean, your your book hasn't officially come out. So when people read this, um, I'm sure you're going to hear from people going to say, oh, my God, thank you for saying these things. Like, because I love the story in your book about uh, fixing the guy's dislocated finger, because to me, like as a writer, yeah. I face that fear all the time. <laughs> the, you know, what am I doing? And I'm a fraud. <laughs> I'm going to be found out. I got to fix this guy's finger. What am I going to yeah. do? You know, but you know, you, you, you have this, you have to put on a confidence for the person's sake. It seems like, like you have to serve them first, almost emotionally, like even by your presence, you almost have to come in with something just so they can feel better. Right. Like that's yeah. almost 90% of what you have to do in certain situations. A hundred percent. I mean, I, um, yeah, between 90 and a hundred, I think, well, to your first point, um, that people would, people in the profession would read this and kind of see some of their experiences. I mean, that's, that's my dream. Oh, thousand percent. That's going to happen. Yeah. I really hope that people connect on that level and, you know, um, all the emotions that I tried to kind of, throw in, including that kind of, uh, that feeling of being a fraud, uh, mm-hmm. that takes a very long time to go. I don't away. think it ever does. Honestly, I don't think I, I would agree that it never fully does. And <laughs> of course you choose the two, the two fraud areas, writing. <laughs> yeah. Let me, let me leave this doctor thing. You know, writing seems like a safe area to not have a fraud conflict. No, that's actually one of the biggest areas. Uh, yeah. hundred yeah, <laughs> percent. Um, yeah, but I mean, I remember like at some point I had to realize that um, the best thing I could do for patients was, you know, yeah, I can, I can put on the confidence, Mm -hmm. but when I don't know stuff, I don't know it. And I'll tell people I don't know Mm -hmm. it, you know, like I, I didn't feel like I could do that at the beginning, Mm -hmm. you know, because, you know, it feels like everyone's just watching for you to mess up and everyone that kind of expects you to. But as I grew up as a doctor, you know, people in general appreciate it when you, you know what you don't know. And, um, and when you let them know, like, Hey, this happens to be my limit on this. This is what I'm going to do to learn more and to be better for you. Um, but I can, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I know all. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's, that's been kind of the relationship between doctors and patients, you know, throughout history. Um, that's how you get folks just kind of blindly following, you know, whatever doctors say and not really sharing the important information, uh, that will give nuances to your treatment and your, and, uh, your diagnosis. Um, because you feel like you can't, Patients feel like they can't share that with the doctor. Mm-hmm. They can't, they're not on equal footing at all in that interaction. And I think that, you know, until we can break that down from the physician side, um, you know, we're missing out. Mm-hmm. And I think people's uh, health suffers when they feel that they're not in a partnership mm-hmm. um, with their doctors. You, the book, of course, talks a lot about your self-doubt uh, in many different mm-hmm. ways. Uh some very funny and everything too. Where do you think that is connected to doctor? Do you was like was do you feel doctor was your choice or you kind of intimate to me that it was more of an expected thing from your parents? Do you think it was kind of 
foisted upon you and that is kind of the root of some of the self-doubt and that type of stuff because there's an expectation that goes with them? Or did you really want to be a doctor? It's like, man, I really want to be a doctor. I'm a little different than most uh, children of immigrant families in that the expectation was kind of in my community, mm-hmm. but it was never something that my parents put oh, on. Okay. Me. Like, it's just something I felt, um, you know, if you're, if you're pretty smart, you know, in Jamaican families or, or Trini family, whatever, you know, there's a couple of, you know, uh, paths you can go down. And the one everyone wants you to go down is being a right. doctor because right. they know that that's a profession that will always be respected. It will always pay you enough to live. And, you know, they're always going to need you, you know, the most conservative, uh, way that you can be successful. Um, and that's kind of, you know, part of the immigrant experience that I, I came from, I think. And so I kind of put that expectation on myself because I didn't know of many other paths. And so you spend, when you kind of have that in the back of your mind, uh, you kind of spend a lifetime justifying it and finding ways to justify it. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I don't think I ever really loved it, but I sure convinced myself that I did. Mm -hmm. And I think Mm, that there are a lot of folks who feel that way. Yeah. So was it a love hate relationship or was it just a hate hate relationship? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think it was a, I mean, we don't get to the love hate until I enter the relationship. Mm. I've been idealizing it for 20 odd years. Um, and, uh, then, you know, once I finally really jumped in, you know, you're, you're on the train, you can't get Mm -hmm. off. And so now that you're learning the reality in the face of that reality, you have to keep convincing yourself like, yeah, this is what I want to do. That's why I'm here. I wouldn't be here otherwise. So I got to keep going. And then, you know, something comes down the pipe or some experience comes in that just threatens to decimate you. And you're just like, okay, you know, that was hard, but I love this. Right. So I got to keep going. So let me just keep pushing. Um, and so I feel that, and I mean, that's what I've gathered from a lot of my friends is just, you start facing the reality. And then because you know, you can't get off that train mm-hmm. because you're already $200,000 in debt. And because you don't know what else to do with your life, because you've been on this path for 10 years already. Um, you convince yourself that this job is what you love and what you need. Mm-hmm. And at what point does it happen in the residency? Do you think, or I doubt if it happens in med school where you go, Oh fuck. <laughs> you know, what am I like that one moment? Where it's like, what am I doing? Or is it even past that? Do you think when that type of feeling, even if it's not expressed, but that feeling is in there, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I think it happens to everybody at different times. Mm-hmm. I think it does happen as early as med school. Mm. Um, wow. I think once you start mm. for some folks, it happens as soon as you take, start taking those first tests and you're not getting the A's that you got in college. Yeah. Um, Cause you're in a sea of people who got A's in college, you know, and you're just like, Whoa, okay. Like maybe I'm not the biggest fish anymore. And then MBA is different from NCAA. <laughs> yeah. right. So, <laughs> exactly. And then, you know, you start, maybe you're not great on the test. Cause we have all these tests that are just like separating the excellent from the less excellent. You mm. know what I mean? 
And so that's really hard. You know, we call them step exams. We have one right in the middle of med school. It's an eight hour multiple choice test, Mm -hmm. testing basically everything you ever learned from the first two years of school. And now it's, it's miraculously, it's become a pass fail test, but uh, that only happened a couple of years ago. Really? Um, Until then, that was a test that, uh, you know, you had to score something out of its total score of 300, which no one ever achieved. But your score on that test kind of helped make the decision about what sort of specialties you can try mm-hmm. to go into. Right. Because, you know, if you don't score well on that test, you're not going to be able to, you're going to have a lot of difficulty applying to neurosurgery or plastic surgery or mm-hmm. ear, nose and throat surgery because um, those sort of uh, those specialties decided to make themselves exclusive by only accepting people with like X number of points on this one exam. You know, what's the top if the high score is going to lead someone to what? What's the top one? Is it neurosurgery? The top scores, they fluctuate slightly over the course of time, but it's usually, it's usually like a top five ish neurosurgery, mm-hmm. ear, nose and throat surgery, plastic surgery, orthopedic surgery, plastic surgery. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And sometimes dermatology is up there, but it's like a mix of what they call like the lifestyle, uh, uh-huh. specialties what, where, <laughs> what are the trash ones? What are the trash ones where you go? Oh, that's what you got. Okay. I know what you scored. Well, I don't want to say like, <laughs> you can't say any specialty is trash. No, I know. I, I'm the, com- I'm the yeah, comedy, you're writer. The comedy guy, tra- but yeah. the doctors who listen to this can be like, Oh man, we call me trash. <laughs> We're talk about that. But <laughs> okay. What are the ones where you go? Okay. Sure. I'll try that. <laughs> well, okay. I'll take my, I'll take my experience for example. Okay. So, and I'll let you extrapolate from there. So okay, good. on that test, that big test of doom, I scored below the national average, below right. my school's average, below everyone's average is pretty bad. I passed it, but not great. And so, yes. you know, with the scores that I had, I was being advised to try emergency medicine and internal medicine and, you know, uh, family medicine and, you know, these less competitive specialties. Mm. And there's myriad reasons why people view those specialties as less competitive, uh, which aren't, you know, it's not great, but we can Mm -hmm. spend a lot of time on that. But that's not to say that those types of doctors are not immensely valuable because of course, like, your internal medicine doctors, your family doctors, they're the ones you see all the time, but they're not the ones, you know, owning the golf courses. You know what I'm saying? Like they're not the ones <laughs> bringing the money into the hospital, right. you not know, um, and so they yeah. come lower on the totem pole. And so mm. people kind of get funneled uh, into, uh, into those specialties mm-hmm. and the types of folks who tend to get funneled into those specialties tend to look like us. Hmm. Interesting. Which is interesting. Yeah. I never knew this. This is good information. Mm -hmm. Okay. So when you're uh, past above that line of demarcation, let's just say, Mm -hmm. you know, it immediately says, oh, okay. So your score is worthy of being here. First of all, you know, Uh we have to deal with you a little differently. Uh, So something else has to be reckoned with. There's a little bit of uh 
dealing on a different level or being viewed in a different way, I guess, right? Uh, yes. Uh, or having to deal with assumptions people might make as to why you're there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I, cause the high, like the more elite, uh, circle that you're you're able to jump uh -huh. into right wow. right right because yeah. right. it's like i'm telling you man like ent is a is a good example i think the statistic uh -huh. was like there's at any given time there's usually like around 10,000 ents in the country um and okay. at any given time any given year 100 or less are black wow um and even an even smaller fraction of them are black men. And so, really? you know, I could, I went on the entire interview trail for ENT and I was only ever the only black man applicant in the mix. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, once I got into my program, of course I'm the only black man in my program. Mm -hmm. um, and you start learning some things about uh, why that is, um, the way that they gatekeep, you know, uh, certain specialties, um, is really insidious. Um, why do you, why do you think that is? What do they do? What are some of the things? Well, I, what I've, and I think people at like you would, you would know this in, in entertainment too. I mean, when there's big money to be made and a life, like there's a really, just a really well-regarded specialty that makes a lot of money like ENTs like they call themselves the gentleman surgeons because they think they're just you know they're very <laughs> fancy because we, uh -huh. we we dig in noses all day and that's very I know very glamorous yeah yeah we love it and so um that means it's a it's a specialty in a in a a branch that to be protected um by white dudes because they're the ones who kind of hold the keys to all of this essentially. Um, and so you realize slowly over the course of years that their world wasn't meant for you. It wasn't made for you. And you're there because, you know, doctors are, you know, we're supposed to be benevolent, you know, like when the call comes to like integrate and like bring, like, you know, you know, 40, 50 years ago, you know, bring women in and bring people of color in, you know, um, there's a limit to how much they could say no when they're supposed to be looked up to as the best of us. Right. But mm -hmm. unless you know how to act in the way that they expect, uh, a surgeon to act, um, you're going to keep failing at things and you won't know why, um, mm -hmm. you're going to keep running into brick walls you're going to keep you know messing up and being uh you know singled out for your mistakes in a way that your colleagues are not singled out um you are going to be ridiculed for your personality in ways that your white colleagues mm. are never ridiculed um mm. you know and it's it's going to make you feel crazy you know that's the whole thing you know you're, you're going to start wondering if you're the crazy one for feeling this anxiety for feeling like nobody wants you there for feeling like, you know, you're kind of being not set up to fail, but not aided in succeeding in the way that, um, you know, your colleagues are. Um, and so it's a, but it's all silent, you know what I mean? Most of mm -hmm. the time. Um, 
And so that, that makes you feel really isolated. Um, and it makes you feel like giving up a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And a lot of my colleagues, a lot of my minority colleagues who have gone through similar, uh, experiences in residency, they'll, I mean, I was talking to them through mine. I mean, it feel, it can feel like they just, they, they don't want you there. And for you to mm -hmm. succeed would be despite them, um, rather than, you know, them seeing your success as something to champion. Um, it sucks. So <laughs> that's the best way I can describe it succinctly. I would, uh, uh, wonder if the other side of it is maybe a certain bond with some of these colleagues where, you know, you've made it through the worst type of boot camps, you know, or you're on the other side of that type of thing. Does, do you get to bond with, uh, some of these colleagues in that way? And does that give a certain amount of self-satisfaction or? Um, I bond with some of my colleagues, uh, mm -hmm. after the fact, um, mm -hmm. and most of them are my colleagues who I know went through an experience in the way that I did. Um, in general, people talk about the bonds that you make in residency and yeah, it's like going through the trenches, you know, yeah. it's just like the, it's, it's, the best analogy or the best comparison um, is to life in the military, really. Mm -hmm. um, and they become your brothers and sisters. The ex people exactly. Because that's who you're going to war with. Right? Exactly. So, you know, they're the only ones who get it. They've been through mm -hmm. it. But I've really bonded with the ones who went through the extra stuff. You know, mm -hmm. the ones who had to go through not just the difficulty of learning everything they had to learn, but doing it in a, an environment that was hostile. Um, and to this day, you know, we really look out for each other. And I've made it a point since I graduated to look out for um, my colleagues who like kind of came up behind me, who mm -hmm. I know uh, were going through that. And I tried when I got older and I had a little more sway, you know, in that fifth year, uh, tried to kind of help them uh, find a home in this journey where, you know, there wasn't one. Yeah. And you certainly didn't need outside forces to <laughs> make it difficult for you because it seems like you had enough inside forces that were creating obstacles yeah. for you. Yeah, I think so. I think that's accurate. Um, I, yeah. Um, what I realized um, as I was, putting together the idea for this book. Um, because okay. originally I was just like, Oh, I'll just tell about my journey through medicine. Um, but then sure. I was just like, you know what? The story I, I feel like I need to tell isn't just like, let's make an indictment on, you know, the medical education system. It was yeah. really just, you know, how many people have these thoughts? Mm -hmm. you know, how many people yeah. think no matter what they show everybody that, they're not good enough and never have been. Mm -hmm. you know? um, I think the answer is a lot. And so that's when I was like, I gotta, I think I gotta dig really into the stuff that's kind of been haunting me my entire life. And mm -hmm. for me, you know, it's, you know, I've had chronic depression longer than I probably knew um, mm -hmm. before I even had the vocabulary to understand it. Just right. very, yeah, just, it was always kind of waiting in the wings and mm -hmm. it's in my family though. 
you know, it's a disease my family doesn't have the vocabulary to talk about. No, they don't talk about it. Yeah. yeah. Especially certain generations. Absolutely. Uh-huh. And so yeah, I've dealt with that in my family a lot. Yeah. A hundred percent. And it's just either they want to ignore it or they don't know how to deal with it or just everyone has, you know, an uncle who just like locked himself in the outhouse for like 30 years. And everyone was like, Oh, Mm -hmm. that's just uncle Charlie. You know, that's just how he does things. But like uncle Charlie wasn't okay. You know what I mean? And like, you know, Mm -hmm. uncle Charlie had kids who, you know, inherited some of that trauma from, from him and also had their own stuff. And so, um, as I kind of unpacked the ways in which I was feeling and the ways in which I had been trying to hide it and run from it and that sort of thing, Mm -hmm. I really began to feel the weight of, you know, the trauma that kind of comes through the generations that come before you, Mm -hmm. uh, the trauma that you experience um, from, you know, your parents, you know, who are of those generations the trauma that I myself sort of inflicted on others. Um, and, you know, it's just, there's so many levels to it, to, to, to these diseases that go through your family, to the traumas, both emotional and generational. It's fascinating. Yeah. Where do, uh, maybe from a personal experience as opposed to, well, maybe your clinical observation of this, you'd have a good, ability and maybe to have both observations because I'm not sure how I feel about this. How do you think trauma is primarily passed down? I believe that trauma is one of those things that is much genetics as it is socialization. Mm -hmm. You know, like I believe that because I'm one of those people that I believe you come into the world 90% of who you are. And I believe it's only 10% of of, of nurture. I think it's 90% nature, 10% nurture. Anybody that has kids would be more on my side in a great yeah. way, especially, <laughs> you know, seeing how kids are different. It's like, oh, how did this little nigga get to be like this? And this one is like, this. you know, it's like, you know, I think cause you come in with things, you know, but I think there's, there are other things that are not necessarily personality markers, but things like trauma, I believe culturally can be, in there, like genetically, what do you have an opinion on that? I don't know if we've studied that enough, actually, you know? Right. And I think, I think there are a lot of people that are smarter than me that, that study this, but mm-hmm. personally, um, I mean, when you're talking about the kids, I mean, I a hundred percent believe you. I mean, I got a, a kid who's almost two and mm-hmm. yeah, their personalities are there from oh, when yeah. they arrive. You know, thousand percent. I mean? Yeah, it's yeah. just like you. You just get. You just get out of the way because. Oh yeah. You know, this you little motherfucker is not kidding around. Like you, <laughs> you see some kid, it's like, oh my god, he's he's not kidding around. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but when we're talking about trauma, mm-hmm. the ways in which trauma is inherited, yeah, um, I don't think that. Well, it depends on what we're talking about when we're talking about trauma. Okay. Um, because, you know, I think that, you know, um, there are definitely, from the medical perspective, we know this to be true. There are definitely genetic components to several, um, you know, of our mental disorders and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, depression yeah. is a genetic disease. Um, anxiety yeah. is a genetic disease. Bipolar is like genetic. You know what I mean? Huge components. I mean, like... 
you start at the gate with like, yeah. you know, it's like, come on. You yeah, know? So you may be popping out. Like no one's even slapped me yet. Like let something happen, you know? <laughs> exactly. Right. But if we take that out of the pot, you know, say independence of the, the disorders that adjust your brain chemistry. Okay. Um, I think that trauma is often inherited socially and culturally. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that you may have, you know, little kid that pops out and is just like, uh, they may be, you know, like super feisty and displaying leadership qualities and that sort of thing. But if they have a parent or a home that treats them in a certain way, you know, Mm -hmm. that person can either go on to become head of the class or they can go on to, you know, be committing very antisocial things. And those so same qualities those can same go qualities in different directions. You to, exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. And that depends. I think that part depends on your nurture and your nurture is right. informed by the trauma that your household has gone through. And sure. so it can be yeah. very difficult. Path many times is a result of, of nurture where yeah. person on the path is a lot of nature. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah. Can that person on the path, despite their nurture ultimately make make their own decision based on that person that was that was born that popped out that one day um mm-hmm. i think that's the real question you know that i started to ask myself it's mm-hmm. just like can i can i be someone who is not just the collection of you know my father's mistakes you know right. is that possible or am i fighting genetics for my entire life and i don't have a chance you know, um, and who is that person? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure, you know, can we find that person? I don't know. Um, and so I think that's kind of the heart of the journey that I went on and am still on, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think that was a really long winded way of maybe not answering your question. I'm not no, sure. No, you did answer it. You answered it very well. I thought you, there's a lot of good, great insight in what you just said. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life. With premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. You had a passage in the book I wanted to ask you about um, where it seemed like you were wanted to take your life in your car. Mm. Um, I wanted to ask you what was going on there. Was that the case where you add um, this was before you started a medication, I believe. Mm -hmm. Okay. Can you just talk about that a little bit? I think I would love to just hear that from you directly because that kind of turning point is I think it'd be valuable to talk about that moment. What was going on leading up to that emotionally for you? What was your reality? And when I say reality, depression has a way of giving us a reality that we think is real, right? Yeah. Yeah. Even though it's not. So just talk about that moment and maybe the, some before and after, if if you don't mind sharing some of that. Of course. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think we're, this is kind of like the midpoint of the book. Um, where I really talk about having 
thoughts of hurting myself and Mm -hmm. suicidal thoughts. And I think, I mean, I have the benefit of insight now, um, but at the time I did not. And as I wrote, I I tried to write it in a way that showed um, how lacking I was in insight in those moments. Um, Because when depression starts to kind of pull you under, Mm-hmm. Um, it does, just like you said, it distorts the way you see the world around you. Um, it mm-hmm. distorts the way you think about yourself, the way you interact with people around you. Um, and for a lot of us who experience it, the path to that point is not something that we can that we often have vocabulary for. Like we mm-hmm. we don't necessarily know the warning signs that it's coming, and then all of a sudden you're here and you're, you're in this really dark place. You know, for me, ultimately I realized, you know, when I'd go through experiences where I felt I was made to feel, or I did feel inadequate or Mm. experiences where I felt abandoned, um, Mm. I would fast track myself kind of to the bottom. And so it often came on the heels or at the ends of relationships, uh, with folks after big exams or tests and like those sorts of things. But often for me, it was, is relationships. Um, mm-hmm. Even if it was a relationship I wanted to get out of, even if I'd been the one to break things off, I would blame myself for not being able to make it work. Um, even though I knew it was bad for me, you know, and that's kind of, uh, that was a pattern for me for a really long time. Like I don't deserve the thing that I don't want. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's cyclical. It's like, wait, it doesn't make a doesn't lot of make sense. sense. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't make sense, but that's, that's and I'm self sabotaging the thing that I want to get out of. But exactly. hundred percent. Doesn't that make, <laughs> right. mm-hmm. no, it keeps you, yeah. it keeps you right where it wants you. you oh, I mean? Yeah. And what a spider's web of an emotional trap. Jesus yeah. Christ. And so like the feeling of being kind of at that bottom because we learn objectively like symptom wise in med school, what happens to people, you know, we right. have a mnemonic for it. We can, we can list off the symptoms like this, you know, Honda, um, I yeah. think was one of them, right? <laughs> but you know, um, when I wrote about the experience, I wanted to kind of bring people into kind of what it feels like and what it tastes like and what it, looks like, you know, and, you know, for me, it's almost like seeing the world in kind of muted colors, you know, it's kind of like sepia tone, you know, in Mm -hmm. front of your face, like it happens slowly and you don't realize it. Mm. And that kind of extends to the way you interact with folks. Um, For me, I stopped being able to be kind of, stop being able to put on the show um, Mm -hmm. because, uh, I stopped being able to really understand what people's expressions and their interactions meant. It's almost like, you know, I couldn't read faces anymore. I couldn't be empathetic because I couldn't see like, Oh, this person, they're upset. That means this, they're smiling. That means this, you know, their eyebrows go up. That means that like we do that without thinking about it in normal yeah. interactions, but it's, that kind like, of, it's like autism all of a sudden. Yeah. It it's kind of goes autism. away. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're unable to engage with folks anymore. And so that's kind of the energy you start to give to the world is like, you don't have much to give cause you can't get anything from anybody else. 
Um, and then, um, you know, I've always had, and like, you know, the way I try to use the device of, of having this voice in your head, um, I was always kind of at odds with this voice that kind of told me, you know, how little I was worth and how trash I was at everything and how I, I messed things up and how I didn't deserve happiness. I didn't deserve people loving me that much and like all that sort of stuff. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes I was the voice, I think, you know, I don't know whether I was fighting against or if it was just where my brain was at. But when that starts to be the only thing you hear, um, you know, you kind of start to think, you know, there has to be truth to it if I'm hearing it all the time. Um, And so that's how you start treating yourself and you start treating yourself like, you know, it doesn't matter. And Mm -hmm. for me, you know, it was so funny because I kind of went to battle with, you know, the way that the medical community views kind of depression and suicidality because we have these metrics for uh, figuring out just how depressed someone is when, when they come in to see us in the office. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you don't check enough of the boxes, then they don't get too worried about you. And I didn't check enough of the boxes and I didn't check them in the right way. Like when I was definitely feeling suicidal and I went into the, you know, into student health, you know, what they always ask you is like, have you thought about hurting yourself? And I was like, well, I do hurt myself, but I'm not trying to kill myself. You know, I do cut (laughs) myself, but that's not the point. That's not my goal. Is this just a word for masturbation? What are we talking about here? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's just like, I mean, like when you're, when you're smart enough, you can get caught in the semantics. Exactly. You and have tools. See, when you're smart, you're too clever for yourself sometimes, you know. Exactly. You can, yeah. you know, you can be glib and you can get around um, things. Yeah. Exactly. And that's that's dangerous. You know, yes. it proved dangerous for me because I was just like, well, I don't think so. And then, you know, they're just like, have you thought about killing yourself? And I was like, well, I don't think I have. And then the next question is, well, do you have a like like even if I said yes, the next question is, do you have a plan? Uh, for how you would do it. Um, And if you don't have a plan, even if you said, yeah, I've been having these thoughts, if you don't have a plan for how you're going to execute it, then they'll send you home. They'll give you medicine and send you home and say, let the medicine work. You're going to be all right. Because, you know, when people get really down, sometimes they have these thoughts. But if you don't have... You know, like, I'm going to go home. I'm going to open this bottle. I'm going to take these pills. Right. Um, then they're like, okay, you'll, you'll be all right. Do you have a plan? But are people, are they counting on someone to be honest with that answer? Sometimes people are. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, it's, those plans are specific. Wow. You know? um, but sometimes people are on the borderline. And mm-hmm. I feel like I was on the borderline because my whole thing was that I'd never come up with a plan for myself. Mm. But what I decided to do was be careless with myself Mm -hmm. and to put myself in positions where an accident could be more likely to happen. Mm. Wow. That's deep. Yeah. So that was, that was my particular uh, 
style, I guess, of being suicidal. Um, but it's, it's, it's a style that kind of made me uniquely vulnerable when it comes to getting help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's why, you know, I drive and take my seatbelt off. Like it was, it was weird. I remember the feelings. Like it's just all of a sudden it just felt really uncomfortable. And I wasn't like, I'm not trying to be dangerous, but this has got, it's just got to come off or just, you know, I just let go of the wheel for a while on the highway mm-hmm. and just see how far I drift. You know what I mean? Mm. Until I was near the divider and then be like, okay, okay, okay. Um, but yeah, it was just, I started to be careless. Um, and so the fact that I am still here, sadly, was just, I was a lucky one. You know what I mean? What was the instrument of your luck? I mean, what was, what was, what were the dice? Was it just medication? Was it a friend? Was it? I think that the instrument of my luck was medication. Because the darkest, how did you, how did you take it though? Why did you take the medication? Like, because you could have received the medication and not taken it. Yes. Just left it in your drawer. Yeah. Um, well, there were, I've had several of these episodes over the course of my life. Um, Mm -hmm. I had them before med school, Mm -hmm. um, during and after like in residency training I did. Um, I think when I was young and I had like, you know, I didn't want to feel the way I was feeling. I knew mm-hmm. something was wrong. I just didn't know how to get it right. And mm-hmm. so if someone said, Hey, take these pills, they're going to make you feel better. I'd be like, cool, give me the pills. Like I'll do it, you know, whatever I need to do. Um, mm-hmm. but there's a funny thing about like, uh, depression medications is that they don't work immediately. And when you get them, you get the prescription, you're usually at your lowest point. Mm-hmm. And then, <sighs> It usually Ooh. takes like a couple of weeks of taking the medicine yeah. for the lights to come back on, you know? And so that's usually the most dangerous time Ooh. is when you got the medicine, but it hasn't kicked in and the thoughts are still there. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you hopefully don't get in the car accident. You hopefully, yeah. you know, when you walk up to, you know, the cliff on the side of the gorge, you don't slip. You mm. know, you may walk up to it, and you're not sure if you want to jump, you probably won't jump. But if you slip, you know, then the, t- the choice is taken out of your hands, you know? And it's kind of like, you know, I don't know if you call it cowardice in- when you're in that mindset. Sometimes I, I do. Um, mm. I, I don't know if the cowardice, which, what, what would, what are you calling cowardice specifically? I think being in the mindset that you don't, you don't value your own life, but not being able to rid the world of you. Okay. So you're identifying that that has a feeling of cowardice to you. I mean, it did, it did in that moment. I don't think it, I mean, I don't think that way anymore, but Mm. then you feel, it feels like cowardice. Um, And you're just like, why am I not decisive enough? Why am I not strong enough? or weak enough to just do it, you know? And that's a, yeah, it's a, it's a weird feeling. It's, it's really tough. Um, but I think, you know, whatever that feeling is, if we're, if we are going to call it cowardice in that context, 
that's probably what saved me as much as anything. I was, I would say long live the coward, you know, (laughs) (laughs) know? I mean, listen, I mean, to be that low and feel Mm -hmm. that cowardice, I guess. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's not even like I was holding on to the fact that the medicine was going to work. I was like, I I have no reason to believe it's going to work. I'm just hoping, but that hope is outweighed by how I feel about myself. It's interesting. You know, there's so many contradictions in these types of things. And it's funny how you can be in a profession that, you know, relies on medicine as the tool by which people arguably get better. And yet your relationship with medicine is that, well, we'll see what happens, you know, <laughs> like, like it was the last resort for you as opposed to the first resort. Yeah. You know, um, is your relationship with, has it changed your relationship with medication in connection to depression? Has that relationship changed for you? And are you changed because of that relationship change? Oh, hundred percent. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of the time for me, and I think there are a lot of people who, who have experienced it this way, is that when you have an episode, um, that's when you'll go on medicine, you know, mm-hmm. just to like get yourself right. Um, and then kind of when you're feeling better and more like yourself, you'll start to not take it anymore. Yeah. The medication is more like a butler. Go get me some food. I'm exactly. hungry. You know, I don't need you when I'm not hungry. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And that yeah. for me, as someone who's like, the depressions just kept coming. Like this is someone with chronic depression. And I didn't, I didn't know that um, to stop taking the medicine for me, it was a mistake. And mm-hmm. it's a mistake. I only realized, you know, as I got much older, I was like, Oh, I need this every day, you know, to like, like just to help my brain chemistry stay where it's supposed to be. Um, right. And I like, you know, you can't, I can't, I fell into the trap of just taking it when I was in crisis. Same thing um, with me in therapy. I would only go to therapy when I was in crisis. Mm-hmm. But I realized like, oh, you know, what I need to do is be proactive and take medicine when I'm not in crisis so that I find where, you know, normal Tony actually lives to go to therapy when I'm not in crisis so that I can really dig into the reasons and the triggers for these depressive episodes. So I'm not just at the mercy of life as it comes at me anymore. And so getting to that point was the real turning point for me in my mm-hmm. life. Um, and it came when, you know, after I'd had a lot of, a lot of close calls. Yeah. God bless you. I remember there was a, I used to read joke books when I was little there. It's funny, funny. I became a comedy writer, but I remember one that it was a real corny joke that stuck out to me when I read it. It was, uh, this, uh, I can't remember the participants, but it was raining and there's this, uh, roof that was leaking. And the person said, why don't you fix your roof? Says, I can't get out there. It's raining right now. You know, it's, (laughs) it's the worst time. I said, okay. So then it's sunny and the guy says, okay, it's sunny. You could go fix your roof. He says, why? It's not leaking right now. You know, mm-hmm. like <laughs> to me, <laughs> like that's kind of the metaphor that a lot of people, a lot of people live with that metaphor, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and it's the toughest um, psychological hurdle for many people who need help, but can't yes, get it. Exactly. And that is, and especially, I mean, especially for, you know, black folks. I mean, what do you, you think is the biggest obstacle for black folks and mental health remedies like 
therapy and that kind of stuff, medication. What is the biggest hurdle from your, let's say, personal and professional standpoint? My personal professional standpoint. I mean, it's just, I, I think there are, I mean, the cultural hurdles are well documented and talked about all the time. Um, but I think that, uh, black folks is I'll, I'll speak for black men. I don't want to speak for everybody. Um, okay, I'll speak for enough. who I am and, and what I know. Um, mm-hmm. there's always, there's so much that rides on your ability to appear and remain strong. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so much that r- rides on your resilience um, in, in this life in, in America, especially, that you can't afford any show of weakness. You can't afford, you know, mm-hmm. vulnerability. It's like they spell masculinity with a K instead of a C. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's just like i mean because you're up against so much mm-hmm. i mean the country hates you and you're dealing with that every day you know <laughs> from the time you're a baby and so you're just trying you're just tr- you're trying to survive you're trying to succeed somehow you're trying to be someone that someone else can look up to that someone else can depend on um mm-hmm. and you know that you're your livelihood and that your, your life can be just snatched from you like any second, you know, when you walk out the door, you know, like every day of your life. And so there's all of that. There's so much riding on your ability to hold it together. The idea that a path to your own true strength and your own healing could be through making yourself vulnerable is something that doesn't even compute. You know, it's hard to even wrap your head around it. It's antithetical to everything you've been trying to be and everything you've understand uh, understood that you can be and that you you want to be. And so I think that for for me and from what I've seen from my uh black male friends, that's that's a major major hurdle that's specific mm-hmm. to us. Um Mm-hmm. In addition to all just the normal, basic human hurdles of dealing with your own mental right. health. Sure. Um, and so that's, that's, I know for me, that's always, it's always been a hurdle. I mean, I was in a unique position where my mom's a psychologist. And mm-hmm. so she tried to bring that vocabulary into our world early. Um, yeah. But it didn't change uh, the barriers. Yeah. And it doesn't change the chemistry. Uh-huh. Um. Well, man, it's been so interesting talking to you, uh, Anthony. I, I mean, you're so talented in so many different ways, but you're so honest about these things, you know. Um, and even though some of the things we talked about are serious, your book is wildly entertaining. It's yeah. very funny. Just tell people. It's not all a bummer. Like it's just No, like- no, no, no. <laughs> There's a sequence early on. The way you prepared to talk to this girl in middle school is classic. <laughs> I was laughing so hard. <laughs> uh, you had these cards and then you forgot the... I mean, but you read these things. I'm like, this is brilliant. This is... This kid is brilliant, you know? And yet... <laughs> You could see him drowning in like all this stuff. It brought back so many of the emotions I remember having at that age of feeling yeah. like I'm not worthy, but I'm gonna try this. No, I'm no, I'm failing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, oh, but man. the whole book has this type of uh 
this share with us that is is so entertaining and honest at the same time. Well, I I appreciate uh, you saying that, and that was that was absolutely a goal of mine. Um, yeah, like I know, like early on um, in early drafts of this, you mm-hmm. know. I come off looking like a pretty aggressive asshole for like a lot of moments. <laughs> and so, so um, you know, my, my wife and my editor were just like, Hey, um, it's a little raw, you know, but why don't you like, I had to figure out to some way to have people root for a person who was going to go on and make a lot of mistakes and not be the best and mm-hmm. mess a lot of things up for people he cares about. And so mm. I was just like, okay, that, that I understand. And mm. in that way, you know, I think it's important for people to know kind of, you know, how I talk, what my voice is, you know, kind of how absurdly I look at the world in general and how I yeah. kind of always have and, and how I kind of, you know, see the silliness in a lot of things. And the way I talk to myself is often very silly and kind of, irreverent and and that sort of thing and let folks in in that way hopefully they're on board with you when you go through it yeah that's awesome uh the book is called i can't save you anthony chinqui you guys i think you have saved a lot of people i mean i might just disagree with the premise of your title (laughs) (laughs) premise falls apart i apologize but But it comes out april 4th is it april 4th yes april 4th guys this is a really really good read you will it will do your heart good there's so much good stuff in here uh uh the sarah story you know is such a great story um Mm -hmm. i won't so you know when you read the book you'll see what that is but man that explains like so much and yet like all the stuff that happens in the rest of your book it all happened in that relationship right there like yeah too. Mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> which is kind of interesting you know even the self-sabotaging and uh-huh. all that stuff yeah yep very 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 relatable too i appreciate that yeah absolutely um, good luck with the book man i hope to see you <laughs> out there on the road hawking it and all that stuff absolutely thanks so much for having me larry it's been such a pleasure oh pleasure was all mine i can't save you you guys anthony chinqui 